0: Let's stand. It's important as we come to Romans 9 to read in unison these wonderful words from Romans 10. Let's read them together this morning in unison. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Vance Havner, the old mountain preacher of a former generation, said this. If I could understand everything there was to understand about God, he wouldn't be much of a God. We come to the glories of God's mind and his great plan of salvation in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Pastor Weersby, who served here from 1963 to 1971, had his seminary professor tell him this. Warren, if you try to explain election, you may lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you may lose your salvation. (laughs) Fascinating quote. We are headed for this mountain peak doxology that ends Romans chapter 11. You'll remember this great doxology which we are going to worm toward all the way through these chapters, it begins like this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. That's how that beautiful doxology starts. Are there any hunters In the crowd. This word inscrutable is a word which means unable to be tracked and therefore plummeted and completely found out. His ways being inscrutable. Preaching is a conversation with the text of Scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and the people of God. And it's a great glory. I'm grateful to God for calling me to this good work. But there's always a conversation that goes on uh, between the preacher and the congregation. And this week, I've had three separate interactions about last week's message on Romans 9, 1 uh, through 13. You'll remember uh, the fever pitch uh, part of Romans nine thirteen. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Well, I had one quote that in the midst of some other things being commented on, it simply said this, that was a thought-provoking message. I had another who sent me what would in every way be characterized as a gracious email but could equally be characterized as describing all of the ways that this uh, dear sister's uh, beliefs were different than what I spoke on last week from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And I, I must say it was a gracious give and take several times uh, back and forth. Another one, uh, disturbed uh, by the content Uh, went to a lay leader and asked about, hey, what about this? And and they had uh, some good discussion. I want you to know this. I I have no agenda. What are you doing in Romans 9? Well, it's as simple as it follows Romans 8. And we are going through the book, and it's here. Uh, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. How rich, how sweet. We're at 9, 10, and 11 now. Then we'll get to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I was um, just praying about and going through the message and rehearsing it in my mind. I was saying, Lord, now, there are no imperatives, commands, calls to act in the verses that I'm going to go over this morning. Uh, and, And then I was thinking about all the imperatives that line Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. But the imperatives sit on top of an understanding of the glories of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's a part of what's going on in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and in this special section of Romans 9, 10, and 11. So here we are. Uh, I love you. And I'm pleased to be here in God's word together, given to us profitable for reproof and correction, training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, might be thoroughly furnished for every good work. In fact, you could capture Romans chapter 9 and verse 23 in the one phrase that's used. He describes the content here as the riches of his glory. Let's plummet these riches together. We're together grappling with the plain sense of the text in these difficult areas. Someone wrote a book a few years ago called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Well, if we were to write a book on the hard sayings of Paul, I think we would include some of what he talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But in these hard sayings are the grist to understand the majestic act of God To save us. So lest we lose sight of the context of this discussion, Romans 9, 10, and 11, remember, many are scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going on. God revealed himself to Abraham. The Israelites were the people of God to mediate the knowledge of God to the world. He was supposed to tell them Reveal himself through them. The Messiah comes through Abraham's blood, and the Jewish people reject him. And Gentiles, considered by the people of God, Israel, the godless, they didn't know Yahweh, they hear about Jesus and they start embracing him. And the church takes flight, and there were certainly Jewish people in the first century who came to Christ. And so it's a mix of Gentile and Jews but the Jewish people are trying to figure out what's going on. The the people who were not the people of God are now the church, the people of God. And the people who were the people of God, they want nothing to do with Jesus which is the basis of the church, the people of God. What's going on? Romans 9, 10, and 11 are there to explain what's going on. Now, I want to read to you the Word of God together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14, right after that verse, and this really captures the essence, of the teeth of last week. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. That's nine Romans 9:13. Let me begin reading at verses, uh, f- f- I'm going to read verses 14 through verse 33. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, I want to go three different directions. First, I want to note with you the structural markers in this passage, the language that Paul uses that marks out what is important. That will bring us to identify the subject of what he's talking about. Secondly, we need to look at the critic's question. You heard it voiced. Part A is in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's plan? Part B is in verse 19. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And finally, we will look at how exactly are we delivered according to Paul. So that's the plan of attack. Let's consider it together this morning. Now point one is this. What do we say about it? Now before we try to identify it, I want to show you something. This would be a structural marker in the text. Look at verse 14 and how it starts. What shall we say then? It's as if he stops. He's, he's in a course of explaining something, and then he stops, and he's getting ready to summarize. He says, what shall we say then? And lest you think this is odd, he's used this before. Look across the page at Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? He's doing the exact same thing. Now look ahead to verse 30. What shall we say then? So what he's doing, he's doing some explaining and then he stops for a summary. What shall we say about all these things? Some more explaining stops for a summary. What shall we explain about all these things? So we need to try to figure out as we read this passage what is it? Look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. Whatever he's talking about he first alludes to it as it. Now, come down to verse 27. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The it that he's talking about is the act of God to save his people. That's the it. Now, if you turn the page and look at verse 30, he's still talking about it. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Attained what? They've attained salvation. What it? They've attained a righteousness that comes by faith. So those structural markers are help, us, help us to identify this. In God's act in Christ to deliver us from the tragedy of sin, we have come to be saved. The subtitle for this series through the book of Romans is celebrating the gospel's glory in God's gift of righteousness. It comes by faith, which is where he gets to in chapter 9 and verse 30, which is what we've talked about in Romans 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Jesus saves. That's the it spoken of here. Jesus saves. You say, Mounts. You Baptist people are all hung up on that word. You're always asking people, are you saved? Why do you do that? Well, first of all, let's note together, I think there's universal agreement, it is a term used in the New Testament. And it is a term describing God's act to deliver us. Deliver us from what? Deliver us from our sin, from the consequences of our sin with guilt and indulgence, and shame. It delivers us from despair and delivers us unto hope. We are saved from the condemnation that comes from our sin. We are saved from being separated from the love of God, for now nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we're delivered from sin and guilt and condemnation unto hope, forgiveness, and life. We're actually gifted a status before God. It is that we are made righteous. That's what justification means. And it comes by faith, which is Romans 9.30. That's the it. Now here's the question this morning then is, do you possess it? Do you have it? God in Christ, made it possible for you and me to come to him. And that possibility, that bridge over that gulf of our sin and our condemnation was built by Jesus Christ at the cross. When he resolved our sin in his death and in his resurrection has brought us to the hope of eternal life. Do you know Christ is your Savior? Has God brought you here right in the middle of July in this great year to this morning? Give yourself to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. Be reconciled to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What did we just read? Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an important verse to read as we go through Romans 9. Now, what is the it based upon then? What's the basis of the it? Please note, verse 16 is an important verse because it tells us what the basis is not. What the basis is not. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Much of the chagrin of every free will Baptist, this verse tells us, that our will is not at the center and the sole proprietor of the it that we are talking about. Uh, You heard Michael read well, thank you, that passage from John 1 in which, uh, uh, as John lays it out, it's not by human will that we are brought to be daughters and sons of God. He's very clear in verse 16, the it does not depend on human will that's a little troubling to some. But the exertion part, oh, yeah, we get that. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, it's it's not by these self righteousness projects that we get on. I'm gonna be good enough for God to take me. We don't have enough lifetimes added collectively together to add up all those points to get there. It is not on human will, it is not on effort. And it's what Titus says in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in the flesh, but according to his mercy in the washing of regeneration brought about by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Well, if that's what it's not, what is it based on? What is the is part? It's God's mercy. And oh, I love God's mercy. I need God's mercy. Mercy keeps us from what we deserve. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. You know what we get in Jesus? What did John say? grace upon grace? But also a quintessential expression of mercy. Because my hell that I deserve fell on him at the cross. We get God's. This it is based on God's mercy not our human will or effort. It's based, faith is the arms of our soul receiving the gift of righteousness offered in Jesus Christ. Now he brings up Pharaoh. Look at verses 17 and 18. Yeah, I remember Pharaoh back in Moses' time. Boy, he, he really, he messed with Moses. He wouldn't let the people go. Now the text says two things. The text says in Exodus 8.15, Exodus 8.32, and Exodus 9.34 that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yeah, Eric, he hardened his heart. That's what was going on. Old oh, hard-hearted guy. He's turned his heart away from God. The text also says something else. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9-12, Exodus 10-1, Exodus 10-27, Exodus eleven ten 10 Exodus 14-8. Which is, it's like the uh, dueling banjos of interpretation in the Old Testament, you know. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then, you know, they go back. You know, which is it? Yes. That's which one it is. It's both. And here we stumble, and he he talks about this in verses 17 and 18. The scripture said how he's going to use Pharaoh. That's verse 17. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So that simultaneously and in a way that's perfectly fine for God without tension And in the way that it's not fine with us and creates tension, both of those things are true. The decree of God, his eternal decree is not addressed to us, but exists, and he has decreed and willed. And here is Pharaoh who hardened his heart, and here's God who hardened Pharaoh's Here we plummet the mystery of our will and the intersection of God's decree. But please note that this it, the basis of the it is the mercy of God. We are saved because God is merciful. And when he saves us, he gives us the gift of righteousness. It's not a righteousness. Remember verse 30, the Jews attached, they got very fascinated with Sinai. And, and, and they decided that what they would do is they would uh, uh, get righteous by obeying the law. Well, we're all, the, the law, that's not the law's purpose. What the law does is it teaches us that we can't be righteous by keeping the law because the only thing we're great at is breaking the law. Remember, Paul said, and we went over this before, and earlier in the book of Romans, I didn't even know coveting existed until I read, Do not covet. And as soon as I read, Do not covet, I discovered all manner of covetousness in my heart. That's what the law does, it exposes sin for us. It's not a means to be saved. Now, this is this prefigures what he's going to talk about in Romans 10:4. We'll get there next week. For Christ is the end of the law, the tell us of the law, the fulfillment of the law, the full completion of the law, the full expression, embodiment of the perfections of the law. And in Christ. We come to this righteousness given to us as a free gift. It's the gospel of righteousness. Now, it's worth then stopping to ask, do you have it? And do you sit here this morning before a God who is holy because he has gifted it to us, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? So that when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, which is present, but he sees the righteous perfections of his Son and has included us with himself. All right, then that brings us to the second question that is, uh, is God unfair? How can he find fault with us, Eric, if this is true? Now, here Paul builds on the foundation of what he's already said in Romans 9, 1 through 13. Remember, it's kind of summarized with that fever pitch statement. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. That's the word of God. He's building on that foundation. And so the natural question arises, well, is is God unfair? Is God unfair? And how can he find fault with us if this is how it is? Now, in verses 15 through 21, he takes a run at answering that question. And here's his answer. He asks us a question. Are we in the right position to critique God? Is God fair? The scriptural answer to that question is unequivocally, God is just and fair and good and right and holy. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is fair and righteous in his judgment. And then he picks out a metaphor that Jeremiah, a Jewish prophet in the Old Testament, used. And that was a potter and clay. Remember those boards? And they would get the clay up on the boards and they'd work their feet to get the board going around. And then the potter with those gifted hands would, out of clay, make the object. And they would form it. And if it wasn't coming out just right... And he'd smash and he'd start over and he'd work it until it was just exactly what he wanted and so he asked do you think that the clay has a right to get in an argument with the potter about how this is all coming out how reasonable does that seem that's the category that you are floating into when you say, hey, is God fair? It's just not an appropriate area to probe for us. Thank God for some time off. Uh, the church gives our staff some vacation time each year. Andy and I took a week in June. and we had, We're slated to go with two of our children to a home in uh, Maryland that our son-in-law's family has. It was simultaneous with the delivery date for this grand boy who came on Father's Day, Joseph. And our son, who was not planning to go with us on this vacation, called and said, look, we're, we're spinning out on... People able to take care of Samuel our two year old boy, while we go to the hospital, look, you guys are it you 're two hours away we 'll call you if she starts into labor and uh, so uh, and here 's the deal. It now looks like the induction is going to be right in the middle this week when we 're gone, so we just we called our other two children and said, uh, "Hey, sorry, we can 't go on the trip." Well, that went over like a lead anvil, and um, you know, then we had some turbulence and had to sit down and talk and work through it as a family. And um, we, we just have real, I don't know where, what kind of shape your family's in. We just have real families around where we live. And uh, we, we, we got through it all right. And um, they went to an air show on Saturday before Father's Day. The induction was supposed to be on Tuesday. By the way, if you, you're late-term pregnancy, you want to have a baby, just sit under the Blue Angels and a Raptor, you know, flying over. And it, it'll work and when you walk to the car because contractions started. And uh, so they called us Saturday night and said, hey, we, we think she's in labor. And said, well, we'll you know, we don't know where it's going, but we'll just, we'll just drive up to Columbus. Before we got to Columbus, they were at the hospital. Baby's born at 4 o'clock in the morning on Father's Day morning. Real joyful. Circumcision Sunday, or no, circumcision Monday morning, out of the hospital at 11 o'clock. And we said to each other, hey, let's go. So we just took off at 2 o'clock and got there real late. And, and uh, it, it, it all worked together. In the midst of having announced that we were going to be there, our granddaughter became forlorn. She got really upset. And this is the one that took... She found $6 in her room, and she took it up. And I, so her uncle, whose family has this beach house, and she said, Dane, look, here's $6. We want to go back to the beach house this summer. Here, I'll, I'll, we'll take care of it. Here, here's $6. When she found out that Grandy, Andy wasn't going, well, she became a little disturbed by that, and so she began to develop a conspiracy in her mind for how this all should work out, and there was a measure of tension before we got it all worked out, and we got it worked out. It worked out fine, uh, so I, w- I was on a video call explaining to our son what was going on, and um, she comes into the room. You know, she's seven years old, and she's, she's precocious, and uh, she said, Paul. And she starts into this long explanation for what we needed to do. Now listen, you need to have Ben call his father and mother-in-law and tell him to change their schedule and drive from another state and just let them take care. And she, I mean, it's a very detailed plan that she had all worked out. And then uh, you guys just forget that. You just drive to Maryland and join us. You know, just let that go. And then her dad's listening. He goes, hey, wait, 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 Vivi, wait, wait. Vivi that's not your place to be dictating to somebody else what they're supposed to do and 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 then kind of backed her out of that discussion she was undeterred she wanted to stay in it and get it all figured out but um, when it was all over we kind of laughed because it wasn't her place to be sorting out those details that we were all trying to sort out and alas it all worked out great and and God helped us all through it, and we had a fun time in both sectors. We say, "Well, you know, well, Eric, you really shouldn't have said that." This is the angle Paul's getting to. What are we doing? Telling God how to be God? Why don't we trust Him? Let Him be God, and take Him at His word, and relish. His mercy that's offered to us in Christ. This is the angle Paul is working. In fact, and all of us understand what Moses said. In Exodus 33, it's a great passage. Haven't we all been there? It's like, God, I believe you. I'm following your son, Jesus. I want to see you. Show me your glory. How many of us have been there? Just with a yearning. For a manifestation of God, as it were, an up-close encounter that was not by faith but by sight. And Moses asked him, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to experience you. We've got to be careful what we ask for. So God passes by, and it's quite an encounter. But you know what goes on? As he passes by, you know what is said? Moses, isn't this really cool that you get to experience me here? This, No, that's not said. Hey, you're one of my faves. I'm just doing this to a select few. No, you know what he said? He's passing by in this glorious encounter that he answers Moses' prayer. He says this, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So a singular manifestation of the glory of God is captured in those words. That God's glory is seen in a depth that's really hard for us to comprehend in those various words. That was Moses' experience of God. We don't reckon experiences with God like that although you with me love the mercy of God because we need it so desperately and are so grateful that it's available to us in Christ it is God who prepares Gentiles and Jews to experience his glory Dave Jeremiah in musing upon this passage says the question is not why didn't God save him The greater question is, why did God save any? That's the tenor of Romans 9. Now, note it's God who prepares Gentiles and Jews to experience his glory. That's what 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29 are about. Hosea is going to help us. Isaiah is going to help us. He uses two quotes from the Old Testament where Hosea said, There is coming a day, and what they would have had is a deja vu experience. Aha! I've heard that before. Well, now it makes sense. Have you ever had that before? It's like Hosea told them a long time ago, there's going to come a day in God's work in this world where those who are not his people think godless Gentiles. They're going to come to him. And so they started reading Hosea in a new way. Oh, you're kidding You're you're kidding. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Huh? We should have known all along that those that we, Jewish people, we considered them not the people of God, the Gentiles, the godless. They're going to come because God is merciful and he has compassion on whom he will have compassion. But then Isaiah said, hey, wait a minute. Don't give up on the Jewish crowd because if it wasn't for God's promise and loyalty to Abraham, none of them would be left we'd all be like Sodom and Gomorrah, gone and forgotten. But he has left a remnant and there is a future for Israel. He uses these two quotes to marshal his argument. Gentiles have now become vessels of mercy. God has had mercy upon them. Hosea, not my people, they will be called my people. Isaiah, God's going to give offspring to Israel yet. Verse 29. I thought of that hymn. This week, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand, and mine enfold. I walk and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. Twas not so much that I on thee took hold, as thou, dear Lord, took hold of me. Now, you've heard people say with me, Eric, I came to Christ. Yes, you did. And you came since it. Why did you come to Christ? Well, Eric, I'll tell you what. I believe. Who do you think believed when I believe? I believe you believed when you believed. Eric, I repented. I was once here, and I changed my mind and disposition to sin, and I changed the way I was living. I repented. I believed. I committed my life to Christ. I ask, I believe that. Why did we believe? I thought the scriptures say that God is the author, the progenitor, the originator of our faith. It was Eric, I love God. Why? You know why you love God? Because he loved us first and most in Christ. I repented. Yes, you did repent. But isn't it interesting that Luke says that God granted them repentance in several places describing the movement of the gospel in the first century establishment of the church. Wow. Well, Eric, when I came in to Christ, it felt like it was all me. But looking back, I think something else was involved. That's Paul's point in Romans 9. And therefore, a great song for believers to sing is, To God be the glory, great things here it is: He has done. That's what's going on in Romans nine. Now, are we saved by pursuit of righteousness? This is the question that ends Romans 9. Remember that was the it, the saved part? Are we saved by the pursuit of righteousness? The Jewish nation got fixated on the laws, a means to find, be found right with God. There's a long history of keeping that law and a long habit of humanity of thinking if i just keep the rules and i'm going to be okay sinai marked israel and thereafter they wanted to keep the law in fact uh they got so sophisticated in the first century that they distilled the whole torah all the law of god into 618 commandments if you could just keep all those you'd be fine with god well that was a burden on the people and they felt the burden they were all failing And it's why when Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, he wasn't talking about how they're all like us, tired because of these frenetic lives that we are living, that kind of weary and heavy laden. It's weary and heavy laden trying to be good enough and strive enough and obey enough to be found righteous with God. No, we are saved by our pursuit of Christ, by faith. That's verse 30. That's how the chapter ends with this theme. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is. How does it come? Remember, he got that quote out of Habakkuk in Romans 2:4. The just shall live by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, because it's based on works. So're we not saved by a pur- So we are saved by a pursuit of Christ by faith. Now, the last verse in the chapter is simply this. Remember, Christ is the cornerstone that's been laid down by God that men and women and boys and girls keep tripping over. People keep tripping over Jesus who came to freely give us salvation. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 33. I've read it. Their vision of the promise of God and Jesus Christ is, that can't be Right? That's too good to be true. You mean he, through his act, say, provides what is needed for my salvation? That it's not me, but it is him who saves? It's too good to be true. We cannot possibly get everything for nothing. Nothing. I have to be involved at some level. This has become a tripping point. A lack of humility will keep us from Jesus and we'll trip right over the rock. A lack of recognizing our own need because of our sin will make us trip over the rock. It's in pursuing Christ and not pursuing our righteousness on our own that we are made right with God by faith Romans 9 and the tenor of the ideas can kind of be captured by our oldest when he was a toddler a little man named Caleb now big man with three little people at his house growing up um, he was always kinetic and always on the move and loved doing things where he was in control and operating things And he'd walk into the TV room, toddling around. He'd look at the TV and he'd go like this. Not I'd mess with him. I'd change the channel. He became so fascinated by that. He thought, oh, that's so good. So he'd come by the TV. I'd change the channel. And he'd get empowered and then he'd do it for a little while and I kept changing the channel. And he thought, man, that is so good. I just, I just stand here and I gesture and it happens. And it's me. And I'm doing it. And I'm in control having no idea that I was on the couch kind of giggling, just hitting the button, you know, as he's doing that. Then he'd get bored with that and go off to something else, come back in, and we'd start over through the routine. It was only later that he came to realize that though his gestures were earnest and he was all in and involved, what he formerly perceived as his all-in that was moving everything going on on that screen was related to his dad on the couch with a remote who was moving the parts all along. So along the way, he's quit doing that. One of the glories of coming into Romans 9 is realizing that we thought it was this when God was reaching for us all along. And in Christ, he provided everything that we would ever need for wholeness and life and the glorious gift of righteousness by faith. What a Savior. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. Heavenly Father, shape our perception of you along the contour of biblical lines. Bring us to a depth of gratitude that's an unceasing well that springs up forever because we're not here because we waved our hands in front of the TV. And Lord, we waved our hands. We're here because you acted in Christ to bring us here. We're humbled by this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're moved by this. What love greater than no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. What a future. What a hope is ours in Jesus. Secured, finished, settled, enduring, eternal, encouraging. Thank you us be people of your book, driven in conscience by its grip upon our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.